the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Yet again, I am James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And as promised last episode, you have entered the March of the Apes. Sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! And of course, uh, as promised, our first episode of March of the Apes, appropriately enough, we are talking about the Marvel Planet of the Apes magazines from the 70s. You know, Trey, it's been a while since we've talked about some of these Marvel magazines. It has been. I would say that I haven't missed it. (laughs) <laughs> but these are a little bit different from the horror magazines. A little bit different, yeah, a little bit different. It's more, it's more of a, it's more of a co-feature book than the the anthology that we're used to. And of course, since we're talking about a sci-fi trilo- a sci-fi franchise from the mid '60s that's popular with boomers, we of course brought back our <laughs> beloved guest Andy Leyland. I am boomer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wait. I, I want it on the record that James said that, not me. <laughs> I, I didn't say... Which boomer? I didn't say you were a boomer. I just said the franchise oh, is right, popular okay. with boomers. Which boomer? From the old Battlestar Galactica <laughs> or the new Battlestar Galactica? Because I'm fine with either. Since we're talking about a magazine from the 70s, it'd have to be the old one, right? All right. I am, I am, a, I am OG boomer. Yes. <laughs> and I'm okay with that because... Apollo was always rather staid and boring, and Starbuck always went off on one. <laughs> Boomer was the calming influence in the middle. I am fine with Boomer. You, you, you realize you're not helping yourself referencing Battlestar Galactica. Shush. Uh, Hi, guys. Hello. Thank you. So I, I, presume, I presume the first appearance wasn't completely crap because you've asked me back. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Uh, I, I enjoyed fact, it. So, uh, so I, I am sure, uh, judging from... Uh, the various media properties, entertainments you've talked about on on your own podcasts, you you have some experience, connection to feelings about the Planet of the Apes franchise. Yes, I love Planet of the Apes. I love the original five film cycle. Um, I love that they made it up as they went along, quite literally. Oh shit, they're going to ask us to do another. What do we do now? And yet, still manage to pull it out the bag. I love that it just got cheaper and cheaper as it went along. By the time you get to the third one, it's a TV movie budget. Right, with Paul Williams. With Paul Williams, yeah. Unfortunately, not singing. Unfortunately, <laughs> depending on your point of view. Um, I love that they do form a cycle. I think that that's all brilliant. I love 
Um, I'm going to stop saying I love because I do it too much. I do enjoy the TV show, even though it is very much of its time. It's a wandering man show where they, they wander from town to town every week and evil General Urko follows them with, I'll get you next time, you humans. Uh, I think Tim Burton's film completely missed the point. And the three-film reboot is one of the finest examples of a reboot of an old property I think I've ever seen. I really need to watch them. I've, I've not seen any of the newer newer movies. I think my experience with Planet of the Apes is, you know, it, it, it showed on, like, AMC and Turner Classic Movies as this example of classic genre cinema. Sure. Which, you know, growing up in the early 90s, we didn't have a lot of that. Like, and, we and, had... Uh, to- to connect it to uh, Andy's last time on the show, the special effects for the original film were by John Chambers, who created Spock's original ears. Yay. That all comes back to Star Trek. Apologies to Michael Daly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we could link it to Superman somehow. Oh, um, certainly. Did Charlton Heston and Marlon Brando ever do a movie together? Oh, not that I know not of. I know Although of. I do not know the ins and outs of the Charlton Heston oeuvre. I like all these science fiction movies of the 70s, which are all bleak as hell. Right, this, Omega Man, uh, uh, Soylent Green. Yes, <laughs> they're all just like, everything's going to hell. And you're like, okay, cheers, Charlton. For well, I... Oh, wait, that wasn't his film. Oh, right. <laughs> but, it is, that, but that segment is bleak as hell, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, I first saw the Planet of the Apes films as a child, uh, very young, p- perhaps too young. My father, as with most sci-fi stuff I encountered as a child, my father would go to the local video store and rent things on tape and just hand them to me on a weekend. And so one one weekend he hands me Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, just those two. And I watched them back to back and was a little bit traumatized, actually. The mutants of Beneath the Planet of the Apes terrified me. Um, and, and just how... But I thought the ending of the first film was bleak. But to end the second one by just yeah, blowing everything I mean, up... Yeah. <laughs> like I, and then you see the end of the second one and you're like, holy crap. Right. And then, and, and then my father uh, says, did you like them? Well, there are more. And I said, how? they blew up the earth dad right i don't think you come back from that (laughs) well that's where you'd be wrong hitchhiker's guide to galaxy says otherwise and 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 then have you read i I watched the rest and and escape and conquest collectively are my favorite parts of the franchise so well that's that's where the genius of the reboots comes along they looked at the mistakes tim burton made Mm -hmm. which is you can't remake that first film right Right. You can't do that again. We all know it's Earth, the, the Statue of Liberty, all that good stuff. You can't replicate that. So what they did was, all right, let's remake the third one and let's show how we get to the Planet of the Apes. And I think that's why they work. And that's why they were such a surprise when I watched them. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting anything from them because I love the Planet of the Apes and Tim Burton's movie was just spectacularly yawnsome. Well, and so the fact that they did that first one was genuinely surprised by how good it was. And it was so easy in, in concept to sort of joke about it. Because it had a really clunky title, like Rise of the mm. Planet of the Apes, you know. It, it doesn't really roll mm. off the tongue, but they made it work. Yep. 
and then that and the thing again the reason it works as well is there's very little fan service stuff in it right every now and again there's a nod somebody will call one of the apes bright eyes or a little thing but i think that's very wise because as much as planet of the apes was a massive thing for fox and a massive part of the pop culture zeitgeist before star wars arrived star wars kind of wiped it off the face of the planet right um, yeah, we grew up in the 80s watching it on reruns, but kids watching these new this new trilogy probably have no affinity for Planet of the Apes, if they even knew what it was. Right. And just having loads of fan service in it would have killed it. I, I did appreciate in the first one the very brief mention that the spaceship carrying Taylor had, had taken off and disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Um, the suggestion that you could loop back around to that story and it would work. Yeah, if you chose to, yeah. Have you read Death of the Planet of the Apes? I haven't, no. It's a novel by Andrew Gasker, and it's it's really weird. It's a prequel, sequel, sidequel. Interesting. So it, it takes place after the first movie, but flashes back to Taylor's life before the first movie, what he was doing on Earth mm. before he agreed to sign up to this mission. Starting in um, Vietnam, I think. He's a Vietnam vet. Right. And then it also has scenes taking place in between the two movies of what Taylor and Nova were up to before they got split up and then Nova gets split up. It then partially adapts the second film whilst adding new scenes of Taylor discovering the mutant. So it's a side So, so it's, it's the Taylor's side of the story that you don't see in the film yes. because Charlton Heston didn't want that many scenes. Yes, but also it adapts the second film. It's like another novelization wow. of the second film. So you've because obviously without those scenes you wouldn't understand the story right, so you don't right. know what's going on so then there's flashbacks to how Brent knew Taylor so all of that's in there as well but at the same time it's a prequel to the third film because it's got scenes where Milo discovers the ship that Taylor crashed in and him retrofitting it to allow him Cornelius and Zira to take off at the end of the movie Wow. So it's this weird sequel, prequel, sidequel hybrid, and the fact that he pulls it off as well as he does is remarkable. And if you're ever one of those people who've watched the third film and gone, so when exactly did they make a time-traveling <laughs> spaceship? That book has got all the answers for you. So it's worth picking up if you're interested in the minutiae, and you are a fan, because it is king of fan service. But I, I enjoyed it very much. That's cool. Um, have either of you ever read the original novel? The, the French. I started it. I started it for this episode. <laughs> I did not finish it. I read it back in high school. I started it in high school. Yep. I, I started it in high school and didn't finish I, it. I finished it. The movie's better. <laughs> That's also why you can't do yeah. the reboot thing of going back and doing the novel, because it's just not... No. It doesn't work. It's not cinematic. No, you couldn't do that. Uh, nope, not at all. And it has this weird frame narrative that wouldn't really play in a movie because you couldn't get away with it um and yeah it, it the the thing i like about the novel that the only adaptation that's ever done it is is the, the animated series is that the apes have more technology um yeah. they have like helicopters and jeeps and and movies and things like that um and of course the 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 films in the 60s and 70s were too low budget to be able to do all of that yeah they had to spend all the money on the ape makeup right but the comics weren't, and on this episode, we are going to talk about Planet of the Apes Magazine, number 9, Planet of the Apes Magazine, number 10, and Planet of the Apes Magazine, number 21. That's right. 
Um, so let's go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll come back with our coverage of the magazines. Where am I? In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan. You never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. Hello, it's me, Dr. Z. Coming in February, it's the all-new season of Hanging with Dr. Z. And it's going to be a laugh riot. Fasten your hilarity harness. Things are going to get out of control. Join me, Rusty Steele and the gang, as we welcome a groovy group of guests for another guffaw-filled gab fest. We've packed the place with your favorite actors, comedians, and acting comedians. Goofy, my goofy. It's the all-new season of Hanging with Dr. Z. Coming Valentine's Day, February 14th. 2022. Okay. Hello. I'm bringing us back. I love doing that on somebody else's podcast. Uh, Planet of the Apes was covered 80 June. Uh, Is that 1973? So let me look in the indicia. This is the level of professionalism Uh, you can expect from me. looks like. 75. That's what I want. Thank you, Trey. Uh, The cover is another painted one by Greg Theakston. All of the Planet of the Apes magazines are painted covers. Most of them are beautiful. This one is just two apes with what looks like laser guns rather than standard guns in front of the Lawgiver statue. Lawgiver statue, sorry. is an all-new simian shocker, the Kingdom of the Apes, beginning in this issue. The red logo against the yellow background really pops. I was always a big fan of the strap line, where man once stood supreme, now rule the apes, which is at the top of every single one of these magazines. This bad boy would have cost you one whole dollar in 1975 money. I don't know what that is nowadays. $30, right? (laughs) Quite possibly. (laughs) Quite possibly, yes. Kingdom on an Island of the Apes is part one of Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. It was written by Doug Mensch, drawn by Rico Rival, but in Archie Goodwin's introduction, which they would stop doing later in the magazine's run, which is a shame, it says that this was originally conceived as a Planet of the Apes annual to have been a novel-length 55-page epic to run in one issue. But the deadline crunch on the monthly series meant that certain strips were dropped, changed around, moved around, published in different issues from what they were advertised as. And because this was ready to go, they decided to chop this into a two-part adventure and put it in the monthly Planet of the Apes instead and not bother with the annual, which is probably the right decision. Uh, the art's beautiful by Rico Rival. It's all beautiful black and white. If it was for an annual, I don't know if it was ever intended to be coloured, but there's a part of me that hopes that it wasn't because I think the art's great. I know nothing about Rico Rival. You two have heard of him before? No. Uh, he is from the Philippines, and that's all I've got. Right. So I don't know if he drew any of the Marvel um, comics. In fact, this, this will come generally. up in the, the part two, but because of the, the long distance of, of getting art to and from the, the Philippines, uh, he was not available to do the splash for part two. So Walt Simonson does the splash. 
Right. The art does seem to take a bit of a dive in part two. There's lots of lovely grey shading in part one, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Our story concerns a young inventor by the name of Derek Zane. We do not learn Derek Zane's name until the middle of the story, which could be considered a somewhat of a problem on Doug Mench's part, but we won't mention it. Uh, Derek has created a time machine because he is obsessed with the work of one Herbert George Wells. He thinks life's going splendiferously until he meets up with his girlfriend who basically cans him over lunch because he's a dreamer and not going anywhere, which is a shame. But Derek actually has an interview with NASA, which I would have thought was a big deal, but apparently it's not a big enough deal for his girlfriend. He goes to NASA and says that he has been obsessed with the work of Dr. Otto Hasslein, whose name you will remember from the Planet of the Apes movies. And following those workings, you can tell I'm making this if I go along, he has decided that the three pilots that went missing, Taylor, Langdon, Dodge, and the lady whose name I can't remember. Oh, gosh. Never mind. The four, the four pilots that went missing, he has decided that they've not gone missing. Following the curve, they have actually gone to the future. Somewhere, he calculates, in the vicinity of the year 3975. Even Buck Rogers didn't make it to the... <laughs> the doctor at NASA, understandably, laughs him out of his office, and Derek decides that the best way to cure his ales is to go and drink copiously. He's not a drinker, is Derek, so this ends badly when he decides to go home and, in the way of all scientists in comic book stories, decides to run his experiment without doing any testing first and run his experiment on himself. Dr. Bruce Banner... Dr. Sam Beckett. I'm sure you can come up with many, many others yourself. At least Doc Brown's does. his dog. <laughs> yes. That is very true. Doc Brown was the only decent scientist amongst a <laughs> lot of them. Dr. David Banner. Dr. David Banner tested on himself. <laughs> Derek does, however, find himself travelling through time. His time machine works. A cause for celebration, you might think. Well, you'd be wrong. Because Derek's time travel machine does travel in time, it does not travel in space. <laughs> and Derek finds himself hovering in mid-air where his apartment building used to be, because he was on the sixth floor, and he plummets to the ground, resulting in the time machine ending up in itty-witty little bits all over the canyon floor. Wherever the hell he is, he's stuck there. For reasons best known to Doug Mensch, Derek decides to strip down completely to his skivvies. He did have the foresight to bring with him a rucksack of a gun and a pickaxe and various other implements that will help him survive in the future. It is not long before he comes across a tribe of humans who cannot speak and a tribe of monkeys that can. The monkeys shoot at him. He's not happy with this. He does a runner. One of the monkeys is Xerneas. Xerneas says that he heard one of the humans talk, but that is not what captivates the man. What captivates the monkeys is the bag of interesting tools, which one of them discards as being just relics of an old ape age. However, the lawgiver, he thinks that this is not what that is and takes it away to further examine it. That is where they end part one of the story, with Zane's discovery of the city of the ape. Does it say anywhere in this story that he's before Taylor or after him? It's after. Right. Uh, because he says he, he wants to try and find them. 
Yeah, but but he also <laughs> says nobody's heard of them. But he does make the point that there are no global communications, so they could literally be ten years. Oh, so you mean after he, arri- where, where away, he arrives in the on the planet of the apes? Yeah, that, does he arrive before clear. Taylor or after them? Right. Okay. I thought I'd miss something. No, no, no. I, I was wondering myself, and and sort of the, as as we suggested when we were talking about beneath the planet of the apes, the problem of doing any side story with other characters is you have a hard time limit. Yeah. Because even if Derek finds happiness and true love on the planet of the apes, the, the planet's blowing up right. at the end of Beneath. So there's no happy ending for him, and he doesn't know that. Right. Poor guy. <laughs> and and I, The art in this is brilliant. I do like the art a lot. Yeah, it's beautiful. His use of grey shading, which makes me wonder if it was ever meant to be coloured, is absolutely gorgeous. There's some wonderful panel layouts... Like, the flashback scene is a bit sketchy where he's thinking of his time with his girlfriend. All that's beautifully done. The time travel sequence is wonderful. Yes. Absolutely brilliant. It's got kind kind of... It kind of evokes like a Kirby montage or something. Just yeah. Same, same thing. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And I loved the humour of that. That he, Yeah, he's invented a time machine. He's not invented a space machine. Right. <laughs> he's just hovering in midair and then just falls. I knew I should that have used a police box. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> or a DeLorean. <laughs> the first half of this is great. I genuinely think that the first half of this is absolutely fantastic. Because for the first bit of it, you're not sure what you're reading. Mm-hmm. It's not a traditional Planet of the Apes story. It's very off concept. It's taking place in the then present day. And so for the first half, of it, it's got like a Twilight Zone feel, which is appropriate given Rod Serling's involvement. It's only at the midway point that it clicks what's happening. And I think that the first half of this is genuinely good. And unfortunately, once he gets to fake Camelot, which he'll get to in part two, it goes off the boil a bit. Because I thought there's there's a lot to explore here that they just kind of skid over. There is this one guy, he's arrived on this planet of the apes. He's not got the tools that Taylor has. He doesn't know exactly what's happened or where he is or what's happening to him. So he's got nothing. So him being on his own and fighting on his own wits could have been a really interesting way to go, and they don't go that direction. It is interesting how quickly Mensch sort of abandons any interest in the ape civilization as depicted in the films. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do we think about the employment of time travel rather than, you know, oh, look, another group of astronauts like they did in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I thought that was a clever way around it. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch that he can invent time travel, but at the same time, we're on a planet of right. the Apes. I, I'm of two minds just, about just, it. On the one you know, hand, even having the spaceship go through the time rift or whatever twice was a bit much. Uh, it's Three times if you're counting the series. True, three times plus going back for escape, uh, so the, going back yeah. the other way, uh, which I don't think makes any sense in terms of astrophysics, but whatever. Um, so so in the sense <laughs> of a time machine being an alternative way of getting you there, I like that, that you're not just doing the same thing that's already been done. I, I'm not sure about our protagonist just being a sort of self-described jack-of-all-trades who taught himself physics. He's not even a doctor. I think that's... He's not, no. But I think that's Munch's way of getting around the fact that he clearly has some survival instincts. Mm -hmm. And he clearly knows what he's doing later on in the story when we get to part two. There's things 
that he can do and we kind of get that that he's a bit self-taught and he's a bit well-read so he knows a little bit about everything i, I did so appreciate buy... his constant sort of uh sort of talking to himself but addressing herbert george sort of the hg wells yeah reference yes <clears throat> I didn't understand why he cut his own clothes up because for all he knows that's all he's going to have right uh, it, 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 we were talking about this before we recorded but that felt like a Shatner moment to me uh, but uh, it, it's sort of on the planet of the apes you wear tatters yeah but he doesn't even know that Right. That's that's the only reason I could come up with this in story was that if he'd been dressed in a suit as soon as the apes show up they'd have known there was something off about him right well, and, and whereas this way he just blends in, in, in with the crowd. In my head, I guess I just told myself what he was wearing was not appropriate for the climate, and he was overheating. Well, I noticed that with. Be- well, he does. He does say that. He does say that it's very warm. I noticed that with beneath the Planet of the Apes too. Like they they go out of their way to make sure that Brent is dressed in loincloth and whatever when there's no goddamn reason for him to put on loincloth type clothing. It, hmm. it would have made far more sense in the comic for him to encounter the mute humans first, realize that he needs to blend in, and and then shred yeah. the clothes. Uh, which, because it, it's funny, sort of the opposite happens in the first movie, because when, when Taylor gets captured, uh, one of the things they note about him is it's weird that he keeps trying to dress himself with the blankets from yeah. the prison, whereas the other humans don't. Yeah, so that 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 was the only thing in the first bit that I, I had a problem with. That obviously, they want him to blend in as quickly as possible. Doug Mensch really loves overwriting, doesn't he? It's very narrative he- narration heavy. Yes, it is, and it works in this one, in this in this overall extended fifty-five page initial story. Not too sure it works in the third one or second one. It, it speaks to when I think of my favorite Doug Mensch stories and books, they tend to have something of a noirish bent to them. Things like Batman and yeah. Moon Knight and, and sort of street level stuff. And over narration fits the genre of those. And I think it's mentioned in one of these magazines somewhere, by his own admission, Doug Mench saw only the first two or three films. <laughs> he never watched beyond that. Fascinating. <laughs> so yeah, so I don't I don't even know if he saw the T V show. It right. never mentions that that he saw the television show. But it's really weird that given that he ends up adapting all five films. Right. <laughs> and um, we, we, it's not the subject of our discussion, but but as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the way these magazines are structured is essentially a co-feature. You get two full-length stories and then some articles and photos in the middle. Um, hmm. and, and so the second feature of this book was... Uh, sort of the back half, the back end of Beneath the Planet of the Apes adaptation. Uh, it's not the ending. The ending is next issue, but it's um, close to the ending. Um, and I guess it, yeah, yeah, it, it was seems, also Mitch. Yeah, it seems weird as well that the adaptation of the films is considered the backup strip. Right. That's very strange to me that the original story is what you what they're promoting. All I can figure is because in terms of time, they're so far removed from when the movie came out that it's no longer new. Yeah, that's true. They're adapting films that are what nearly ten years old at this point. Right. I also um, think there is a desire to, and we we kind of talked about this before the show too, to create their own storyline that they could take off of and make their own yeah. title that are not just the adaptation magazine. Right. They they feel yeah, it be- seems like they sort of feel the pressure of 
what kind of happened in the UK with Marvel Man, where they were running out of reprint strips and needed to do something new. And part of that's admirable. Yeah, and also as well, this isn't the only continuing strip. They have got a continuing strip running of um, a young lad whose parents were murdered by the apes, but his best friend is an ape. Mm-hmm. And they're on the run, and, and they've got their, their continuing narrative is going on. Right. And in fact, in Archie Goodwin's introduction, one of the reasons he gives for this annual being chopped into two was they hadn't finished the next instalment of that story in time. Right. So it's almost a fill-in. Yeah. This was this was done and ready to be produced as an annual and ready to go, but they didn't have anything for this comic. I have to say, I really feel for Archie Goodwin in in that editor's uh, note, though, being basically saying like, I just inherited this book. There's a lot of stuff going on yeah. that I was not involved in. I'm doing my best. Yeah, yeah, and he's really honest about that as well. He's <laughs> like, I I've not commissioned any of this material. That's not a tone that you get from from Stan Lee or, or even from Roy Thomas. <laughs> No, I mean, he even titles it Adrift on the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> um, I, I will just note, uh, since since the uh, adaptation section came up, uh, I mentioned Beneath the Planet of the Apes terrifying me as a child. The, the, the renderings, the pencils of the mutants unmasked at the end of that is terrifying. It is far more gruesome than the movie could get away with. Yeah. Alfredo Alcala. Yeah. Well, do you not think some of these strips are a lot more violent than the movies get away with? Absolutely. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Certainly more than the TV show. But part of that is because, at, like, very quickly, Planet of the Apes became kids' fair. And with each sequel, more so. Yeah. Although that's, that being said, the ending to the third one is still pretty it bleak. Is. Uh, I guess I would say by the time you get to Battle for the Planet, the fifth one, that one feels like a kid's matinee. Saturday matinee fair. Yeah, and they're, they're even they're even re-editing it in post to remove anything that may be offensive to kids. Even re, didn't they even reshoot the ending to the fourth. I think one? so. They, they added they, they added a, a sort of final scene with the lawgiver to sort of bookend it. Yeah, and have Roddy McDowell do a voiceover that's close-ups of his <laughs> eyes, right. which is a bit funny to me because I'm all whenever I think about Planet of the Apes, I always think about that scene from Mad Men. Um, I, I think I'm the only person in the room who watches who watched Mad Men all the way through like twice. And there's a scene where Roger Sterling's character decides he's going to hang out for the day of his grandson, and just Roger Sterling should not be left alone with children. Um, John Slatterly's character, um, and he takes his like four year old grandson to a showing of Planet of the Apes, and he gets yelled at by his daughter afterwards because like he, the movie scared him so much we have to get rid of the dog. <laughs> <laughs> it it can be a, the, the first I'd say the first four movies can be very frightening for children from, from my own experience I found them very frightening as a child in the early 90s uh, but I, I don't know that the the, the the story we're looking at today the, the Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes kind of splits that difference it is more violent for sure than the TV show but it, it's not bleak or, or cynical in the way that some of the films could be. No, no, it isn't. It doesn't have. It doesn't necessarily have that jaded look at humanity. It's that just, I think the just sort of a two-fisted adventure story. And the 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 lead evil ape, the general Urko of the story, is God Godono or something. Yeah, I, he looks great with an eye. That's patch. a great look. Yeah, yeah, he looks great. Um, so 
Yeah, I guess to, to continue this, maybe we should move on to part two of, of the story. But first, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages to talk about Planet of the Apes magazine number 10. All right, Josh, we got to do this ad. We got to come up with something. What do we want people to know about Cinepunks? I don't know, man. I feel like they should know everything about Cinepunks. <sighs> All right. We're underachieving overachievers convinced that we know a thing or two about movies. Romance and adventure by the light of the silver screen. Is non judgmental movie criticism a thing? Not really, but we love you anyway. We love cinema, whether it's high art or low trash. Cinepunks, we're elitists, but only about real nerd shit. Liam and Josh, we have two microphones and the truth. Mego presents the Planet of the Apes action figures. Dr. Zaius, the orangutan scientist. Cornelius, the archaeologist. Zira, the woman scientist. The soldier ape. And the astronaut. All Planet of the Apes action figures sold separately by Migo. He's a 20th century guy trapped in the Dark Ages. Just send me back to my own time pronto today. Now he's got a date. Give me some sugar, baby. With the Army of Darkness. Groovy. Rated R. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. Uh, we resume in Planet Apes magazine number 10. Uh, this one has a great cover. Mm. I do like the cover on this. This one's from Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, that's a that's a Bob Larkin cover. Bob Larkin did all of the um, the Fireside books, the Marvel Fireside reprints, and a lot of the novels of that time. The novel covers. Mm-hmm. I, I I wish that like the end of Beneath the Planet of the Apes had looked this psychedelic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just the, I don't think they had the budget for that. No, they didn't. But like just he, even by the second movie, they were using pullover rubber masks for a lot of the apes. So yeah. Um, but you've got a mutant, I guess the head mutant from Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Um, project- so the mutant priest or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Projecting out energy uh, towards the towards the gorillas on the steps, warding them off. And you've got the nuclear bomb god in the background. And I guess that's Brent and Nova behind him. But Brent does not look like James Franciscus. <laughs> Right, and that's true in that's true in the adaptation too. They don't they don't have likeness rights for anybody. No, they didn't. So none of the lead characters look like the actors. I, I I just I'm so amused by the fact that they just were like, okay, Charlton Heston can only appear for like sixty minutes. Let's get an actor who looks almost exactly like Charlton Heston mm-hmm. <laughs> until we stand them side by side, and then we see he's the tiny version of Charlton Heston. Right. I will give for James Franciscus this. I noticed this when I watched Killer Fish. He is a handsome man. I, I think he was great in the second Planet of the Apes. What's a thankless role? Let's be honest. It is. The minute Charlton Heston shows up, the producer's like, right, we don't need you anymore. Right, right. To the point where yeah, they killed it's, him. Well, and, and uh, supposedly, according to the, the Planet of the Apes franchise documentary that was produced for one of the anniversary years years ago is when Roddy McDowell and Charlton Heston were both still with us. And so they could be involved in it. Uh, but supposedly uh, the planet blows up at the end of beneath the planet of the apes at Charlton Heston's insistence. 
Yeah, he uh, didn't want any more sequels. But, but he said, I will do I will do a sequel. I will only do this many scenes, this many minutes, and at the end we blow up the planet so you won't ask me again. It it just blows my mind, like did how stupid do you think the audience are? Like did you think they would just see promotional material and think Charlton Heston was in the entire movie? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was it was nineteen sixty nine. It's it's kinda like the um uh Brian Cranston and Godzilla thing. Right. Where he's in all of the trailers and the marketing, and then he's only in the first third of the movie. Yeah. Old Spock showing up in Star Trek The Next Generation. They trailered the hell out of that, and he's in part one for literally five seconds. Right. Or Mark Hamill in uh, In, The Force Awakens. Yeah. So it still goes on. I mean, at least with Force Awakens, they didn't hype it on Mark Hamill being in it. Right. But, but that one shot of the his hand on R2-D2 yeah. was in every trailer. It was in every trailer, yeah. <laughs> hmm. So, our boy, Derek Zane, is stalking the gorillas who took his stuff because he wants to get his stuff back. It's like the dude who drives up outside your house after he's done buying my iPhone. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he witnesses a murder, which... Makes me think, like, a murder mystery on Planet of the Apes would have been so much better than what we actually got here. The, funnily, before you carry on, this is exactly the premise of the other long-growing strip. The kid <clears throat> witnesses the murder of his family. The ape blames him for the murder, and that's why he's pursuing him, when in fact it was the ape guy who killed him. So it's exactly the same premise. It's funny, then, that, that Minch sort of does that here, and then is like... And now we're abandoning that altogether. Yeah. Yes. We're going in a different direction. <laughs> so yeah, the big eye patch baddie Gorodon, I think his name is, or maybe not. It's, it's almost Gordon. Yeah, almost right. Gordon. Gordon, yeah. Uh, murders his version of Dr. Zaius. Ape has never killed ape. Xerinus. Uh, Which is what, Zerinius, yeah. Yeah. Uh, These names are not as good as the original ape names. No. No, no. they're not. Because he wants to be top banana. And <laughs> top banana, well done, lousy human bastard. <laughs> uh, but of course, the human witnesses it, so he decides he has to silence the human because this human can talk. And Derek Zane uh, knocks him the fuck out <laughs> and ties him up, uh, stages a human revolt so he can get away, and then finds an island. Uh, and he's gonna, he's gonna just, you know, sequester on an island for a bit, give himself time to recover, regroup, and on the island, he finds an ape in armor, and he learns that the island's name is Avedon, and this, uh, ape... Not Avalon. Not Avalon, right, no. Right, Avedon, because... <laughs> Don't want to get sued by the real King Arthur. No. <laughs> uh, and this ape is Sir Gawain. Uh, the a royal knight of the court of King Arthur. He escorts Zane back to Camelot, and he finds out that Camelot is a city of both apes and humans. And in fact, Arthur is an orangutan. Uh, Andy, you're British. I was not aware of this part of British history. I, I was not aware that the knights of the round table were apes either. <laughs> you know the history books a lot gets changed over the years doesn't it yeah obviously right, this... bias <laughs> uh so zane basically pulls a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court 
uh, showing off his amazing ability to produce fire from his hands, a.k.a. a Zippo. And Arthur gives him a chance to prove himself by slaying a dragon, which is an overgrown iguana. Uh, your, your, your basic atomic monster situation. Um, Zane unloads a pistol into the iguana's eye, <laughs> killing him. Yay, he slayed the dragon. And he has made a knight of the round table. But of course, Gawain is having none of this shit, so he challenges him to a joust. And uh, Zane again uses Connecticut Yankee uh, know-how to blind him with flashlight, unhorse him, and when Gawain then tries to shoot him with a crossbow, uh, is ex- Gawain is cro- exiled by King Arthur. Uh, and then, because this is a really freaking long story, mm-hmm. uh, Gorodon shows up with an army of gorillas and attacks Camelot. Uh, there is a mano a mano fight between uh, Zane and Gorodon, and uh, also Chekhov's kegs of gunpowder finally pay off. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and there is a fighty fighty fight fight. Camelot wins, and Derek Zane's like, you know what? I'm just gonna stay here. I'm gonna marry this hot chick that's been hanging around me, and that's the end. Uh, I was particularly fond of the sound effect when the when Derek is fighting Gordon. Wank. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Well. Thank you for bringing up this sophistication of our show. It's especially striking where the, like, explosion effect is on the page. And where the lines are. Right. And you're like, so this wasn't in common parlance in America in 1975. Poor poor guy. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I like the first half of this. I think you've got a lot of intelligence from the lead character that he uses an escape of all of the humans to cover his own escape. I thought that was very bright. (laughs) His making of the raft to escape was very bright and then it kind of falls off a very very tall cliff because none of the other stories films tv shows whatever has give us any indication that the apes have conquered the sea right or even know what a boat is so the idea that gordon would be like well he's clearly sailed off so we shall follow him is a bit spurious and then we get to King Arthur's court, which is just... I'll say this, because there is no sort of communication, seemingly, between communities, I am totally on board with the idea that there could be other models of civilization that that the yeah, apes yeah. could have come up with. That, that yes. I'm on board with. It, it's yes. that they're naming themselves after Arthurian characters that's weird. It. It's the old Star Trek Prime Directive episode, yes. isn't it? Right, right. And, this, yeah. and this, even this say, is a culture that where they found the book of King Arthur's Court. Yeah, and like, like you said, they they say they even state the fact that you know, oh yeah, we just get all this from books. We're, this mm-hmm. is a lark, basically. We're larping, basically. And I, I do think the weirdest thing about the whole story is the giant lizard. Yeah. Again, no indication that animals have been affected in any way like this in the films or the TV shows. Right. It's odd. And especially that it does nothing much comes of it. The fight starts, he pulls out his pistol and shoots a few times and it's over. Well, it's basically though so he can slay the dragon, isn't it? Right, <laughs> That's right. all it's the fault. Uh, and also, just as, as a person who has done a fair amount of studying medieval literature, 
it bugs me that the the antagonistic knight is Gowan because it should be Sir yeah. Kay. Sir Kay Maybe is the bully. Read that page of the book. <laughs> I thought Sir Kay was a gas station, so you know. <laughs> well, Sir Kay is uh, Arthur's half brother who uh, manipulates Arthur at times and is a bully and boor to the other knights and doesn't get along with others. But then, wouldn't he have to be an orangutan? I like. I think they intentionally want to make sure that you know right. he's. Because all the heavies have to be gorillas. Right. You're right. I I just, I take issue with with their use of the names because it doesn't match the actual stories much. Also, can you point out the fact that this character is obviously set up to come back again as a villain and just nothing happens with him? Right. Right. Um, It does seem like there was even there some thought of a third story somewhere down the line that would bring some of that back. Of course, we'll talk about a third story in a minute, but it doesn't bring any of that back. <laughs> no. It, 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 well, no, he kills Gordon. Right. Well, uh, but but not uh, uh, Gowan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gowan is exiled right, sorry, yeah. uh, and, and has a grudge. Do you think, from a story point of view, that is, we kill Gordon, and that way that story's locked off and gone, so no one else from that community is going to be coming over and following us. We've locked that off. It does seem like from here... You could do a whole series of Arthurian ape stories. Mm. Mm. Uh, I don't know how good they'd be, but that does seem to like it, it, they've essentially uh, walled off this community from the rest of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. So, from a story point of view, he can tell whatever stories he wants here, and it's not going to affect any other ongoing narratives. And it doesn't matter if he's not seen any of the other movies. <laughs> that as well. <laughs> like it, it would have been fun to bring in like fantasy elements and. Do a little bit of sword and sorcery, actually, because sure. of course this was huge. Or at least, or at least play more with the the fake sorcery that that Derek is performing. Right. Again, the c- Connecticut but, Yankee sorcery. Right. Yeah. Oh, but uh, but ultimately, I think my main problem with this is once it goes down the Camelot route, you're left asking questions like, "Well, where are they getting all the stuff from?" Mm-hmm. All right. So the castle has survived. As far as I know, the, there's no castles in North America. Have they built this? Or has he crossed the ocean to Scotland? <laughs> In which case, that would take him a lot longer than 20 minutes. Right. Unless, you know, continental drift and all that stuff. All right, fine. But Andrea's got these lavish gowns. And they've got all the tables with the knights and the armor. Where have they found all this stuff? And, and, and for armor like that, you'd need to be, uh, like, creating alloys and smelting metals and... Yeah. No, he found a medieval times, guys. They found a post-apocalyptic <laughs> medieval times. Like, right. you, you have no idea, Andy, how many abandoned amusement parks we have in this country. Like, the Scooby-Doo franchise alone has shown us. <laughs> right, okay. The, uh, uh, the, the, the missing pages that had to be cut from where it was originally an annual uh, are the dinner show, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, I guess the other thing I was wondering, this sort of speaks to Andy's question earlier, is where does uh, Derek live in the present? Before he goes forward to the Planet of the Apes, where is his apartment located? Like, what part of the country? I think it says, but I cannot remember, because he has to get the plane to go to NASA. In Texas. Right, and so that's, that's Texas. But you have to take a plane to get to Texas from basically anywhere, so... <laughs> and, of course, nowadays, you have to use a time machine to get to Texas, so... 
but it, so he's not but he's not around the area where the rest the restaurants <laughs> the astronauts will have landed right i guess that's what i was point. thinking was is he not is he not in new york let's go back and have a if we're going i don't off the script and i know i'm the only yeah. one here who read a script um the other ast- the other um chrononauts launch from long island and they are okay. looking for zane so and presumably they would have thought of the fact that it would not be able to move through space. They, they even cite that, yes. They're like, we are getting so, you to as close to ground level as possible because we okay, don't so he, so he is ballpark in the same area geographically as where Taylor ended up. Yes. Right. Uh, that, that's all I was wondering. I couldn't remember from the story. Um, no, I, I can't say that specifically states that, no. But, yeah. Also, can we talk um, about his... The other thing, you... you you keep saying Connecticut Yankee. Uh, I kept thinking Army of Darkness. Yeah, there is. It does feel like Army of Darkness. You're the, the right. The structure yeah. from the moment he gets to the castle, the structure of the story is essentially Army of Darkness. I mean, they're both ripping off Mark Twain. It's like they are, but but the even the the manner of the battle with setting off the explosions and the flaming arrows, it's all very Army of Darkness. Hmm. Fair. The one-on-one fight. Only read this. <laughs> oh, I'm certain he did. <laughs> Or at least he did, saw the Bing Crosby movie. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's... I, I do think you're right, Andy, though. I, I like the art of the first half better than this. Yeah, I, I don't know whether... You'd never want to say it's rushed, because you don't know how long an artist has took over this. And some of it is lovely. Andrea's got a lovely face, mm-hmm. lovely wide eyes, and some of the artistic elements of the drawing of the, the battles are really good. It it feels a little bit scratchier in the second half, though. Right. Um, but I do wonder how much of that is... The Camelot plot seems really rushed. Do you not think? Like, it, it takes its time with the first two-thirds. And they mentioned compressing it to fit it into uh, the regular issue. Mm. And so I do wonder if some, some things are missing. Yeah, it's like the the big confrontation at the end is literally three pages. Right. And it, it after the slower pace of the first two-thirds... And how well he took the story, though. Suddenly, in the last third of the story, he comes across an ape version of Camelot. He falls for the pretty princess. He gets involved in a couple of major battles. One big final battle, and then, oh, wedding, the end. Right. It moves very quickly. Yeah, and I I can't help but thinking maybe... I mean, he didn't know if he was going to get a sequel, I presume, but maybe he could have expanded the first two-thirds and the this story have ended with him finding Camelot and that be your Statue of Liberty ending. Right, right. And then if he if he got a sequel, he picks up where he left off. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I don't find this as ridiculous as the next one. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I, I did actually think that the ending of it is nicely action-packed and it does wrap up all of the loose ends that were presented in the story. It was a bit convenient. He found a woman who can speak and gets married to a, a mere two days, as far as he's concerned, after he's been dumped by his other girlfriend. Right. Although she's been dead for hundreds of years. And yes, the narrative rushes and some of the art seems to take a little bit of a nosedive. But overall, I did enjoy this for just how batshit crazy it is. Right, and, and it's and the, the sort of truncating things and moving very quickly to get to the action, it's not all, that, that's not all that different from Battle for the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> no, no, not really. Yeah, I mean, the batshit craziness is definitely what appeals to me. Like, right. Yeah, and I, I love the, them f- using the torch in his eyes. That I thought that was, yes. again, 
which is showing that Derek's quite clever. The, the flashlight and Lariat as weapons. Yeah. You guys bemoaned, like, the going into Camelot part. I actually like that. Like, and, you know, we talked about, like, it is refreshing that they're like, okay, it's not a, it's not a homogenous uh, society. There are different yeah. aspects to it. And they play with that more in the unpublished script as well, mm-hmm. which we'll get to. Uh, but I actually like they kind of go... They, they, my only wish is they got further with it. And it isn't just right. he finds Camelot and it's happily ever after. Hmm. So, Because one of the things that I like about Commander of the Apes, and it's there in the more conventional ape society at the beginning of this story, is that there's political infighting among the apes. You know, that there's a class structure and that the, the orangutans and the gorillas and the, the chimpanzees don't get along. They have different priorities and there's there's a little bit of a Game of Thrones thing going. And we see that with the gorilla murdering the orangutan at the beginning. Um, it doesn't... We don't see as much of that in this other community, except for Gowan being a jerk. Yeah, which kind of comes out of nowhere. Right. But then it gets weirder. Yes, yes. And shall uh, shall we uh, talk about the weirdness of the third installment? Of, of the third one, yeah. Let us, good fellow. Okay, so we are jumping forward all the way to Planet of the Apes magazine number 21. This is uh, 11 issues past where we just left off. Yep. So they took their time getting to this. Uh, cover date is uh, June 1976. Uh, and our title is Beast on the Planet of the Apes, written by Doug Minch. Uh, the pencils are by Herb Trimpey. Uh, Inker is Dan Adkins. And it's black and white, so there's no colorist. Uh, let's see. So we open with a quick recap of uh, Derek Zane uh, getting to the Planet of the Apes, uh, his being a starry-eyed dreamer and fool who built a time machine, um, how he ended up in this strange medieval Arthurian ape society um, and found true love with Lady Andrea and married her. And we open with Zane turning his back on all of that and walking away from <laughs> it um, because he suddenly remembers after all this time that he came to the he came to the future for a reason that he's trying to rescue Taylor and the other astronauts. Uh, and so he abandons his home and the castle and his wife, and he goes to find the raft that he used to reach the island in the first place. Uh, and when he gets to the raft, he discovers that someone else has already been using it, and he meets the chimpanzee Robin Hood. And <laughs> I'm sorry, Robin. Cla- yes. No, it's just chimpanzee Robin Hood. You maniac! Sorry, right. go ahead. Um, and so Robin claims the raft as his own property that he found and challenges Derek to a fight for it. And so we get a version of the classic uh, Robin Hood and Little John uh, fighting with both staffs on the water. I, I can see you're hearing the Disney song. Yes, I know. <laughs> I am hearing the Disney song. <laughs> um, but they, so they fight on on the raft uh, as it's floating in the water, a little bit like Robin and Little John fighting over the, the toll bridge. Uh, and they knock each other into the water and reach a truce, because at this point the raft has basically carried them most of the way to shore. Uh, and so Derek basically 
conscripts Robin Hood to join his crusade to to find Taylor and the other astronauts. Uh, and Robin agrees to help. They find another ape riding through the forest, and Robin Hood distracts the ape so that Derek can knock him out, and Robin Hood takes his clothes. Because, of course, both Robin and Derek are still wearing their medieval finery, and so, or, or as Robin puts it, his Sherwood greens. Um, and so they change clothes so that they can disguise themselves as an ape and his human slave. Um, we get a bit of flashback uh, to Derek's experiences in the present, um, being left by uh, Michelle, being humiliated by the uh, by Kringstein at NASA, um, witnessing the murder of the orangutan, um, and that brings us back to where this story more or less started as far as the, the ape civilization is concerned. Uh, the traditional sort of uh, flowing structures of the ape village as seen in the movies. Um, they are confronted by a gorilla who seems to have taken charge in the power vacuum left by Gorodon. Um, and they sort of get by this by saying that Derek is scheduled to be taken to the vivisection lab. They use, uh, they continue using that excuse to sort of lie their way into the lab. Um, Derek is strapped down to uh, an, an, uh, an observation table, inspection table, um, and while he's strapped down, they are about to remove the trachea of a woman, and Derek can't help himself but to shout out that they can't do it, that it's murder, it's cold-blooded murder, and... This terrifies the apes because humans are not supposed to talk. Uh, in the confusion, the woman grabs a scalpel and straight up murders Dr. Cassius, the, the lead ape uh, scientist. Uh, she cuts him free. Uh, and, and, it, this, and it's been revealed that she also has rudimentary speech. So this is yet another speaking human here. Uh, yeah. She is not mm. as eloquent as Andrea in the previous stories, but, uh, but she says things like no hurt or uh, free, free you, um, sort of like Nova in, in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Um, and um, Zane talks about, he, he hears about a talking human at the lab, and he thinks right. it must be one of the astronauts. Oh, that's right. So this is why they've, they've come to this lab, is there have been rumors of a talking human in, uh, in the lab. Yes. Uh, right. So uh, the, uh, Zane escapes with the girl, um, they run into the, the general gorilla, uh, General Zanor, uh, and the orangutan, um, and there's a big chase scene. And in the chase scene, it looks like they're both about to escape, uh, but, uh, he gets, ca Derek gets captured, uh, and he is put on trial. Uh, Robin Hood, in the meantime, has found the, the talking human woman, uh, and, tries to convince her to cooperate, to, to help him free uh, Derek. Uh, meanwhile, Derek's trial is clearly a show trial. They literally already have the noose around his neck as he is being tried. Um, he is convicted, and as the noose tightens and the floor falls out from under him, an arrow snips the rope and he falls to the ground. Um, Robin Hood cuts him free. Uh, they jump into a wagon pulled by horseback. Uh, Derek asks where the girl is, and Robin Hood says, uh, 
She was supposed to create a diversion while they escaped, but either she didn't understand or she got scared. But just then, um, well, first the, the gorilla general climbs onto the back of the cart. Um, Derek stabs him in the throat very violently with, with an arrow uh, and pushes him from the cart. Just then, the woman appears shouting Zane's name. Uh, but as she jumps toward the back of the cart, she is shot in the back. Uh, and, and Zane gets his Charlton Heston moment. No, you killed her! You killed her, you dirty, filthy, stinking animals! Bloody bastard! Um, but Robin and Derek escape. Uh, Derek notices that they've moved their munitions uh, to a different part of the village uh, because he stole the munitions last time and set fire to the building they were in. Um, so he does that again. He uses a flaming arrow and detonates the, the new munitions building. Um, after their escape, they bury the woman uh, Derek names her Hope, um, and Derek and Robin part ways, with Derek continuing to search for the missing astronauts. And that's it. Yeah, it's... I mean, we... we 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 joked about who would have to do this one because it's sort of convoluted. Did that? Did I get it all in? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, you did an exceptionally good job. Given that this this comic is frequently ten to twelve panels per page, it's a lot. Yep. And the amount of dialogue and captioning, it's it to say it's dense is to imply that dense is easy to read. And this is not. Right. And, and, and there doesn't... are so many sections that either flash back or mm-hmm. uh, sort of don't happen chronologically. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I found this one hard work because it, it starts off on the back foot with me because it does something I hate in sequels. It immediately undoes the last film. Right, you abandon the story. status quo. Yeah, to, to make this story work. So, like, suddenly he's not married anymore. No. He's just ditched her. And he literally says in that panel, my memory of her has faded. You've just left her. It's, it's, it's like so, if I went to the grocery store and I'm like, my memory of my wife is fading. Yeah, I will now go off on an adventure. <laughs> and I'm not as big a fan of the art here. It does the job. Right. But it's not as good. And the whole, you were stretching it with Camelot, but I'll give you Camelot. I'll give you that buy. Now that it's been established, it's there. Yeah. But now you've got Robin Hood. Lally. <laughs> and as as with the Camelot stuff, they reenact Robin Hood versus Little John. Right. And I'm sorry, but at this point, my suspension of disbelief has not just been shattered. It has been taken, snapped in half, and then jumped upon. <laughs> because I'll, I will give you the one by. I will give you the Camelot. I'm not giving you Robin Hood as well. What was next? <laughs> was he going to meet... Was he going to meet the gangsters? Was he going to meet an ape, Al Capone? Was that what was next? See, I, I was waiting no. to meet Robin Hood's band of merry mandrels. Bennett, silence the animal! Oh, oh. wow. Terrible gag. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Derek was going to be, they were going to stick together and create the merry men. Right. I honestly thought that's where it was going to go. And given that he was all very, I'm glad I didn't kill the ape in the last story, it shows I'm still human. He has no problem ramming an arrow through this guy's throat. Right. And and that's, it's a pretty violent scene. Yeah. Yeah, it's literal on camera, jam the, the arrow through his throat. 
scene. It, it, like I'm, we said, it's it's interesting that like the actual film series is getting you know um, warmer and cuddlier, and of course the comics are just like fuck it, we're stabbing bitches, <laughs> we're stabbing bitches in the throat. Let's go. Yeah, we're a magazine. There's no comics code. Do what we want. The more I think about it, I feel like those two pages should have flipped a little bit. It would make more sense for him to reach the breaking point of stabbing the ape in the throat after the yeah. woman's been shot. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. And again, you kind of get the impression there's a little bit of the TV show paradigm going on here that, well, there's another woman here, let's kill her. Right. Because we want him to be the wandering hero. Right. And I, I gotta be honest, guys, I struggled with this one. After really enjoying the annual, I, I kind of thought this was a step too far. I, and and it, it's funny because we, we talked about that and how quickly the the first story abandons the ape civilization of the mm-hmm. movies and this just immediately turns around and comes back to it and i can't help yeah. but say no no not like that yeah 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 it's like why did you do that if this is what you were going to do with it it's like they got cold feet almost like they got right they got afraid of going to uh, from deviating too far from the established universe of the films uh because they're like you know, if we are going to make this into an ongoing thing, we can't stray too far from uh, Adobe Huts and whatever. Which should, should I talk about the Stone script? knives and burskins, basically. Yeah. Sh- should I talk about the script now? Because... Well, so and the script, the script. It's worth noting would have come after this. Yes. Um, because the yeah. at the top of the page it says reference and it gives the issue numbers for these three issues. Yes. So there there was a. There, there was a proposal to basically do the Planet of the Apes TV series, but with Derek Zane. What were we saying, Nick? Just before you do, let's mention how gorgeous the Ilnorum cover is. It, it, it's nice. It is. The, it, 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 I, I think it's wonderfully coloured. I love the flames in the background, and because it, it, it's, it's the cover is the adaptation of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, yes. right? Which is also in this. But you'll note as well by this point, the magazine has dropped in price to seventy five cents, right? Which means the introductions have gone. The letters page is now only one page. The strips are a little bit shorter, and there's only one article in this one. Sex on the planet. Sorry, SFX. <laughs> On the Planet of the Apes, you will never convince me that they didn't deliberately write that. So if you just glance at it, it looks like sex. Right. <laughs> um, that font. And that article also feels a little shorter than the articles yeah. in the previous. By the way, um, $1.1975 would be equivalent of $5.50 today. Which would still be reasonable price for a magazine of that that's size. About, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I this cover is certainly the sort of thing that catches your eye on a, a newsstand. Hmm. The, well, go on, James. Tell yeah. us the script that was never produced. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, uh, there is a script for subsequent issues, um, and basically the idea would have been that uh, Derek Zane is going to travel the ape countryside like uh, Kane. Kane from Kung Fu. Yes. <laughs> it's essentially the TV series, but yes. with Derek yeah. Zane. Uh, he gets another chimpanzee side, sidekick. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, they get rid of Robin Hood and immediately bring in another chimpanzee to replace him. Which... Right, well, you need you need the Roddy McDowell character. You need the, the, uh, the Cornelius type. Yes, but this chimpanzee has a dark secret, and the gorillas are hunting him for it for some reason. 
but we're never told what the dark secret is. But it could mi- mi- spell okay. the end for all ape kind. Uh, also, back in 1973, uh, NASA has figured out that Zane actually created a working time machine, and they decided they're going to rescue him. So they've copied his blueprints and created their own time machine, the Kronos, and they're going to send two astronauts, a um, woman good guy character and a dashly male character, to save Zane. Uh, of course, when they do so, uh, the the dashly male character immediately reveals himself to be a dashly male character, and it's like, okay, stupid assholes gave me a time machine. I'm going to go. He literally says, "Rape time." I'm going to go steal all the inventions of the future and take them back to our home time and get rich. And he even points out, like, I could do something as simple as um, figure out where fashion is going and <laughs> become a fashion person. That's actually a more clever time travel scheme than most. I'm still a fan of Sports Almanac myself. <laughs> and um, so, uh, but of course, he tries to steal the time machine. The time machine blows up. He loses an eye. So, um, he, we have another character for Dashley, Eyepatch. Um, and then Zane is brought by his uh, new chimpanzee sidekick to a different ape city. But this ape city uh, mirrors 20th century Earth, including um, a ape version of New York City, um, cabbies, um, apes in suits, uh, and that sort of thing. So basically, so he literally the novel. he literally predicted the ending of the Tim Burton movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the the ape cops and the ape uh, Lincoln Memorial and yeah, he he shows up at, like Mitch states in his proposal. It's basically the city from the novel, right? Right. Because he's like, why not have both? Sure. It's interesting as well. I've just been speed reading it while you're giving us a synopsis. If you cut to the end of this initial issue, he talks about his plans for the future going as far as issue 60 yeah and he's on about at one point they would have blasted off to another planet and done John Chimpman on Mars well I guess at some point you have to get off the planet yeah and then at some point he would want to go back to 3976 because of his wife right yeah and it's it all sounds like okay <laughs> it's very ambitious it yes. is I, I don't know that Marvel at this time would have been willing to let it run long enough to find its feet. No, I don't either. But it does lend credence to, if, if you read all the magazines, and I read them all quite recently, it just stops. Mm-hmm. And you do get the impression either it was cancelled very abruptly because of sales, which doesn't seem to be the case, or they just lost the license. Right, and I, I've never been able to find out exactly what it was that ended the series, but it seems very abrupt that it ended. How long does it last? Um, it goes on for another seven or eight issues after this. It's around issue thirty that it ends. Right, um, twenty nine is the last issue I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. So twenty nine issues, and the twenty ninth issue, if memory serves, I didn't go back and reread it for this. I just reread the stories we're covering. But if memory serves, there's nothing in the issue about it being the last issue. Not really. Um, they they celebrate the tenth anniversary of the Planet of the Apes, um, and I don't see like an editor's note or anything about the book ending. Yeah, so that always implies that it was incredibly last minute that it it went away. Um, it does look like by that point they're doing a, a story about 
uh, what are they calling it? The Future History Chronicles, which which seems to to dig into some of the let's do different things with different types of civilizations type stories. Yeah, um, and the fact that the letters page ends with them still asking for more letters, right, right, implies that they thought there was going to be more. Um, and of course, yeah. at that point, they've got Star Wars, right, which has very much taken over as the big sci-fi book. And Star Wars saves Marvel, basically. Yeah, Star Wars stopped Marvel from spiraling into bankruptcy at the end of the nineteen seventies. Um, but they have said that Conan helped with that as well. Star Wars and Conan were essentially keeping Marvel afloat. And it's also interesting that... Uh, so, there was also a Planet of the Apes UK comic. Yes. Um, oh, are we going to talk about that? Uh, just that it exists and that its format is very weird. Like, you look at an issue and there will be a segment of a Planet of the Apes adaptation alongside a Doctor Doom story and... You know, it's sort of a hodgepodge of stuff. By the by, issue, what is it? Uh, it ran for 123 issues. It looks like yeah, it did uh, well. Um, by then, it's Planet of the Apes and Dracula Lives. D- Dracula did not perform as well, but the TV series was incredibly popular over here. Millions tuned in for the telly series. But the thing with the Planet of the Apes weekly, all our comics were weekly, so that necessitates the chopping up of strips. All right. our and comics were also everything. anthologies. Yeah, because right. that's that's what our comics were. They were all anthologies. So Spider-Man would have Iron Man and Captain America as a backup strip, so on and so forth. But with Planet of the Apes, they obviously were running out of material. So they repurposed Kill Raven scripts and redrew them. <laughs> with apes? Yes, and redrew that's them brilliant. with apes. There's, a, there's an entire website devoted to it. Go and Google it and look at it. And they do panel-by-panel panel comparisons where they literally just pasted ape heads on whoever Killraven was fighting and they If you're going to do that to trips. a book though Killraven is the book to do it to that yeah. makes sense So that's how they kept the strip afloat for as long as they did, they just repurposed other strips Wow. <laughs> uh, but that's where I first read these my, when, uh-huh. my, when my, my stepdad but my dad married my mom. he had boxes of Marvel Comics, British Weeklies he had Spider-Man Comics Weekly, Mighty World of Marvel and loads of Planet of the Apes and Dracula Lives and that's where I was first reading them and so I was kind of reading Dracula Apes and Planet of the Apes, probably a little bit younger than I should have done. <laughs> but it didn't affect me in any way. I'm perfectly normal. <laughs> I'm so, oh, I wasn't supposed to laugh at that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so apparently, apparently Marvel has reacquired the Planet of the Apes license. Yes, yes David F. Walker is writing the new book. Uh, the he, he was on... Uh, Power Man and Iron Fist for a minute. Um, he did a cyborg run for DC that was pretty good during the New 52 era. Um, and he co-created Bitterroot with some uh, comic creators who are local to us, James. Oh, yeah. Sanford Green. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, the, the creative team on that book is good. I'm curious to see what it's like. And apparently we're also getting Planet of the Apes variants because... yes. Across the Marvel line. Yeah, we get variants that make no sense to comics all the damn time. Uh-huh. I was very disappointed by the solicited Planet of the Apes omnibus mm. because I thought it was these magazines and I was quickly going to pre-order that and then I've discovered that is one of the slimmest omnibuses Marvel have ever put out. It is literally only the adaptation of the first three films oh. and it's $125. And That's I'm ridiculous. Like, oh, thank you. Uh, uh, that Yeah, no. Like, at, at least throw in 
don't know, some of the, the later stuff. Because wasn't that, was it Malibu that did some Planet of the Apes stuff for a minute? At least put all five adaptations in it. Right, at least do the, it, this all is of just, the movies. This is yeah. just three, yeah. It's not even the complete five film cycle. So I was very disappointed in that. Of course, they can't do the Green Lantern crossover. Um, right. No, they right. wouldn't be able to do that. Um, I haven't read that one. Is well, that any I, good? I I've never read that either. I, I remember it coming out, and I'm sure I read an issue of it. But I've I, heard I it's didn't. good. Like, yeah, I've heard it's really good. But I'm just like, that is just the weirdest idea for a crossover. No, 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 no. That's not true. Okay. The weirdest idea for a crossover was in the early '90s when <laughs> Planet of the Apes crossed over with Alien Nation for Ape Nation. I remember that. <laughs> You're kidding. No, no, this is a real thing. Trey has not been drinking. <laughs> yeah. Was this Malibu? I believe so. Yeah, I think so. I, I kid you not, it was Alien Nation and uh, and Planet of the Apes. Alien Nation yeah. is a franchise I haven't thought about in a while. <laughs> I like Alien Nation. Why did it do? I loved Alien Nation. But it's not exactly, you know, uh, setting the pop culture on fire right now. Well, nope. No, no. Although I, think, I have an argument that uh, uh, the movie District 9 is basically just an R-rated update. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Um, I just put a cover in the chat. Oh. Oh, dear. Up the hell. There you go. <laughs> R looks, looks good, though. Yeah. I've, I've just found it in the Planet of the Apes wiki. It basically came about because they're both 20th Century Fox properties. That's that, it. That checks out. <laughs> you know what pissed me off? What's when, that? When I was doing research for this episode, I was like, I'll go back and watch the Planet of the Apes movies. They should be easy to find. They're 20th Century Fox. Disney owns them now. They'll obviously be on Disney Plus or Hulu. Nope. No. They are not. Now, that is that is weird they are on our disney plus right is, is that the what, what do they call it star or or whatever the yes yeah they're under star on disney plus but yeah we, we don't get the star content in the u.s well um, that's why this is this is severely off con topic now well that's why i was really baffled when you you were all kicking off daredevil's on disney plus this shouldn't be allowed children could watch daredevil and i'm sat there going pam and tommy's on disney plus right right uh, well, and so it's funny, it was adding the Netflix Marvel shows to Disney Plus that got them to add parental controls. Because up to that right. point, everything had been PG-13 or lower, and they didn't need parental controls. Yeah. Yeah, so over here, the Disney Plus is actually the preferred streamer by me, because they've got all the Foxes back catalog. Um, I mean, there's still some... Some of gaps. that stuff ends up on Hulu for us. Yeah. So Hulu is Every, sort of the equivalent. Everything Hulu ends up on Star over here on Disney Plus. Uh, you know that. Um, you know what it reminds me. Of? It's just it goes to the thing where people, where parents are like, "I shouldn't have to parent my child." Yeah, I shouldn't have right. to watch what they're watching. Right. And it's ridiculous. It's the same thing that people do now. Like, oh, we have to watch out what books are in libraries now because they're going to groom our kids to be homosexual. Like, first off, fuck you. That's not how you yep. make a homosexual. <laughs> Second, like, do you not look and see what your child is checking out from the library? Right. Like, right. No, no, I always, I did a little bit, and I've just confessed, my son was reading Preacher at a very young age, and maybe he shouldn't have been. <laughs> but I was watching well age inappropriate stuff. As was I. I was 12 when I saw Evil Dead. Yeah, Lily apparently stole my copies of The Boys when I wasn't looking. 
uh, yeah, as a kid. See? And um, so scarred himself. And I was, I was getting into my dad's Fangoria magazines and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I loved Fangoria. Right, and Starlog too. Starlog I actually liked better, but Fangoria was great too. Yeah, well, Starlog and comic scene were more in my 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 ballywit, but I loved looking at Fandora because the the horror stuff was really interesting. And also over here, Fangoria was just racked with Starlog and comic scene. There was nothing about this being age inappropriate. It wasn't <laughs> on the top shelf with Playboy and all that stuff. It was literally on the rack with Starlog in our local news agents. Yeah, it's just. Part of it, I, I wonder if part of the like the pushback against someone like say like gender queer is the fact that it's a comic book rather mm-hmm. than say like prose. Well, I think there's also the the pushback against Daredevil is superheroes are for kids. That is still a right. prevailing wisdom. Right. It all goes back to seduction of the innocent type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's sim- what, what it, we think of the children. It's similar to the to the to the parents who were like, I should be able to take my child to see Deadpool. Like, no, you you shouldn't. Not all content has to be for your child. Right. And it's just like... Yeah, but It's the mentality yeah. that, like, media has to be your babysitter. Yes, when it shouldn't be your babysitter. You should be taking more active interest in what your kids are interested in. Um, now, going back to, to what got us onto that, uh, in terms of, of crossovers, Planet of the Apes has done a bunch... So, I, I do think the weirdest one is Ape Nation. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> Uh, there was a Star Trek Planet of the Apes crossover called The Primate Directive. Which isn't bad. I've read that. Right. Nicholas that one got actually that. got the uh, like, likeness rights for Charlton Heston. Is that IDW? Yeah. So, uh, IDW, yes. yeah. I'll check that out. That, that um, sounds good. Uh, Boom did a Tarzan on the Planet of the Apes uh, miniseries. That one sounds intriguing. Yeah. Uh, David F. Walker, work. who's doing the Marvel book, actually contributed to that one, too. Ooh. Right. That one sounds interesting. Um, and then Boom also did a one-shot that adapted Rod Serling's original script for the first movie. Right. Um, and it looks like also there was maybe a Kong on the Planet of the Apes. I don't know if that oh, was yeah. a one-shot or a mini. Yeah. Yeah, they did do that. So, I remember that. So there's been right. a few. I've... And then, as you mentioned, the Green Lantern crossover, which is, I guess that was when Boom still had the rights, because that was a Boom DC collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Gorilla Grodd. That makes sense. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I, again, I've not dug into a lot of the expanded stuff. I, I remembered the Alien Nation one just because those covers were so weird. But, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting comics-related Planet of the Apes stuff that doesn't have anything to do with these Marvel books, but it's interesting. No. It's just, it, it's a weird place in the pop culture. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I show a clip from Escape from Planet of the Apes in right. my psychology class because uh, there's the scene with the banana mm-hmm. and the and the building the building blocks because it's it's a very good representation of actual uh, I can't remember the psychologist's name now but he 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 came up with the idea of insight and the role of insight in learning and he did it with ch- with chimpanzees with fruit hanging from the ceiling and then being able to figure out, oh, if I put, put put these building blocks here, here, and here, I can reach that without having to do like trial and error. They just like work it out in their head. I, I do quite like the payoff of that scene. Well, why doesn't she take it? Because I loathe bananas. Zero. Well, apparently that was because Kim Hunter actually grew to hate bananas while making the first <laughs> film. Because 
craft services thought it was hilarious to give the the ape actors bananas with all their meals. Right. Of course. Uh, I, I also like the story from the first movie that uh, the because of the makeup and costuming, like just subconsciously, uh, the cast segregated themselves during meal breaks. Like all the chimpanzees sat together, all the orangutans sat together. No one made them do it or told them to. It just happened. Yeah, hmm. yeah. The, the, from what I from what I've heard, like the making of the Planet of the Apes films is just bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, J. W. Rilsler did a making of the Planets of the Apes hardcover, similar to his Star Wars and Indiana Jones books. That's cool. That's well worth picking up. Yeah, I, I, the only sort of behind-the-scenes stuff I've done, like I say, there was a, uh, a feature-length documentary that originally aired on Turner Classic Movies, I think, but it, it was included in some of the, the franchise box sets um, that has a lot of stuff about like the Serling scripts and, and development of the sequels and all that. Mm. Um, and they show some of the uh, test footage with uh, was it Edward G. Robinson in ape makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Edward G. Robinson uh, famously, like when it actually came time to make the movie, he was like, um, I don't actually want to be in makeup. So I. Well, he, he claimed uh, health conditions that would have made it uncomfortable to film in all of the makeup. Yeah, he, he had a heart condition. So yeah. he, he thought that being in the makeup all day would kill him. So instead, we get Samantha Stevens' father. Right. <laughs> Although I, I do like the cast of that first movie. Yeah. Although that makes me think, <laughs> what if Paul Lind had played um, Professor uh, Dr. Zayas? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think when we when we reach Paul Lind, it's time to stop. <laughs> oh, one last thing in terms of weird Planet of the Apes uh, franchise stuff, totally unofficial. But has anyone ever watched the YouTube show? Hanging with Dr. Z. Yes. Uh, where Dana Gould, in full orangutan makeup, plays uh, Dr. Zayas as, like, an old-school, uh, like, network television chat show host. Right, no, I've never seen that. I'll look that up. It's it, worth checking out. It, it, it's, the vibe is sort of Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Yeah. It's hmm. a little bit zany. It, it, it's uh, interview format with mostly comedians and celebrities that he knows. But, but it's yeah. fun. Yeah, he he's interviewed himself a few times. <laughs> yes, yes. But he'll get like uh, Pat just before we and... recorded. I watched one where he interviewed uh, his friend Bobcat Goldthwaite, uh, which which is entertaining. Yeah, it, it 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 very much gives you know like Dick Cavett meets Johnny Carson meets Planet of the Apes meets Space Ghost. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think they just kickstarted a new season of it. So interesting. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> much like the Planet of the Apes films, this episode itself is ending in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the apes must march on, though. In- indeed, and we are going to come back uh, next episode um, with our coverage of Marvel premiere number forty-five and forty-six, where we'll be looking at Man Wolf. Or as he likes to be called here, Star God. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, Trey and James. Man-Wolf isn't an ape, he's a wolf. And you would be right to say that. But stay tuned, because we'll make it work. We'll make it work. <laughs> uh, when, we resu- when we resume, the March of the Apes. 
paws off me, you damn dirty ape! And Andy, thank you so much for joining us once again. Yes. All right, no worries. Uh, and and tell people where they can find you, where they can find your stuff. Uh, the Palace of Glittering Delights goes whenever I want it to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a schedule. The schedules are for whips. Well, I very much enjoyed the Bionic Man episode. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I recently did a Bionic Man episode about Dynamite. It's whatever I want to talk about, basically, mostly comics and sci-fi and genre stuff. And I'm following that up with a look at a couple of random episodes of Doctor Who to celebrate its 60th anniversary. Already recorded, Robot and Jodie Whittaker's Eve of the Daleks. And the episode you recently did with Michael looking at um, Star Trek through the lens of Generation Z or Millennials was was very good. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, he started watching Star Trek and he watched it from the beginning. He's just got to the end of the next generation. Very good. He's plowing onward with (laughs) the rest of it. So we did that. So that's on 2TrueFreaks.com. It's almost monthly. I would say. I try and get a monthly one out. Overlooked Dark Knight is me and Michael Bailey talking about Batman stories we think's overlooked. Or not, in certain <laughs> cases. By the way, finish the omnibus, you coward. Which omnibus? The golden Which age omnibus, of omnibus. Finish it. Oh, God. There's, there's nine of them, dude. <laughs> the first one, at least. Like, oh, I was reading along with you, and then you stop. Well, we only did year one. That was the entire title of the show, James, was year one. <laughs> but there was a clue that we weren't going to go past that in the title. But I'm a white American male. I'm used to being catered to. <laughs> we may we may do more Golden Age stuff. I know I want to do the origin mm-hmm. from 1940. I would love to see you guys do some, some of the world's finest stuff. Like I'm, I don't think I've ever read any. It, it, I actually I have a collection of the world's finest stuff, and I've not dug into it. I, I keep meaning to. It, it's bonkers. Like it yes. is peak, it is peak Silver Age, before things get serious. DC Comics <laughs> madness. Yeah. Uh, all right, we'll have a look at that because anything's on the table. And we're also watching The Prisoner. Love The Prisoner. On Two Tree Freaks, I have me and Bill Robinson have conned Dave Pascarella and Paul Spatera into watching The Prisoner. They've never seen it. We love it. It was either that or another Star Trek show, so we elected <laughs> to do The Prisoner instead. You're lucky they, they never did a prisoner Star Trek comic at IDW. Oh, but they've done a couple of prisoner comics. Yes. Uh, there was famously, was it Jack Kirby who tr- who started working yeah. on one and it wasn't finished? It's not, but that is available as an artist edition, which I have, and it's lovely. Cool. Gil Kane's adaptation of the first prisoner episodes in there as well. Because they tried again later on in the 70s with Steve Englecott and Gil Kane adapting it. That creative team makes sense. Yeah, that artist edition has the Gil Kane issue and the Jack Kirby issue very nice very nice well uh, no I was just going to and I'm on social media say hi yeah and of course you can always reach out to us on social media you can reach us at our email address it's uh, tombofideas at gmail.com our Facebook is facebook.com slash tombofideas our Twitter which is still a thing somehow <laughs> is right. It has not imploded yet. Yet. I mean, it, it, it's imploded a little bit. Well. At Tomb of Ideas. And, oh yeah, we're on Instagram too. At Tomb yes. of Ideas. Your sister's right. here and, soon. And of course, you'll find our entire back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. Uh, we're 
proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group, which also includes shows like The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, uh, The Shame List, uh, Horror Business, and much, much more. So check out Cinepunks.com. If you actually um, are subscribed to our Instagram story, you realize that Trey and I unintentionally saw <laughs> Quantumania together. <laughs> right. Uh, two rows apart, but yes. yes. Like, I turn around after the movie, and there's Trey waving at me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, hi. Yep. yep. So, unexpected crossover. Yeah. Andy, have mm. you seen Quantumania yet? No, not yet. Okay, we won't, uh, we won't, we won't spoil it then. No, uh, but... I most I mostly liked it. I'll say that. I, I think the people who are most negative about it are being too hard on it, but the people who are saying it's one of the best things ever are lying to you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I that, think that as with as with most entertainment, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, I think there is an overwhelming desire by some people to see Marvel fail at this right. point. Well, as soon as the words superhero fatigue get invoked in a review, I check out. Yeah. Because I'm not yeah. tired of it yet. No. Like, I, I would have had superhero fatigue sometime in 1989, and... <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe around the time I wore out the first Batman 89 VHS. Dude, I wore out the Batman meets Scooby-Doo VHS. I'm, I had I'm, that one, too. <laughs> I'm not getting superhero fatigue. <laughs> right. So, anyway. Um, check out our back catalog. Please check out the rest of Andy's uh, shows. Uh... Say hi to us all on social media, um, and mm. leave us a review. Uh, rate, like, subscribe. Uh, those things matter, and we don't talk about them enough. But yeah, uh, all the hail thing. the mighty algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the algorithms which rule all our lives at this point. You don't exist if you don't get a like on social media. Exactly. <laughs> no, no. Please. So, until next time. It's a madhouse! A madhouse! Doctor Sayers, 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 Doctor Sayers. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tomb members. Excelsior! <laughs>